Told you we had a lot of spinning plates this morning. It's good. Well, I am very excited today to have a very dear friend with us. Uh, he'll be mad at me for giving any kind of long intro here, but uh, I just, I love this man with all my heart. He has been such a kind friend to me. Um, back uh, two summers ago, I guess it was, um, or a year and a half ago, I should say, he uh, met me for coffee, and he had no idea that I was going to plead with him <laughs> to consider having me in the church pl planting residency that Fellowship offers, and um, he didn't know it. He walked right up to the uh, cash register, and we were getting coffee, and I said, man, how's the summer going? He said, going good. We got seven great guys in the residency. He said, you know, sometimes we do eight. We leave a space for kind of a, a guy that we feel like the Holy Spirit's really doing something special in. And I had my entrance. I had just this, so you're saying there's a chance, Bill. I had this little moment of possibility. Now, so we met and uh, talked about, honestly, what the Lord was doing. And um, by God's grace, I, I got into the residency, and that was a beautiful year. Uh, I spent learning from Bill and other great leaders that are part of the Fellowship Church system and, and residency. Uh, Bill is one of the founding pastors of Fellowship Bible Church here in Little Rock, and you know that they just turned 40 this past summer, and the work that God has done through Fellowship is, you can't count it. It is, it's beautiful, multiplication all around this city, all around this country, and all around this world. I think you've planted, I think we didn't, we say it's over 200 now with church plants and church plants of church plants in the last 10 years. Praise God. I'm praying with all that's within us that we get to add to that number really soon, believing for that. Uh, Bill is also the principal for Fellowship Associates, the church planning residency, and I'm very excited. He's just finished a book. It's not out yet, but when it is, you'll know about it, I promise you. We'll be making sure we read it together. So please welcome my dear friend Bill Wellens to come this morning. <laughs> you too. <laughs> well, I can't tell you how much fun it is for me to be here this morning. I've been looking forward to it for, uh, for some, some time, so I'm really delighted to be here. Um, I also brought kind of an entourage with me this morning. My daughter and her family, Fred and her family are here, and my son Ben, who uh, live in the Little Rock area, and his family, Sarah Baker. And uh, my wife and, and her mother are here as well. There were a few uh, 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 kind of planning problems, but they are both here, and they are seated back here. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> so if things don't go quite right this morning, I've kind of got to back up. I've got a way to kind of get out of here with my, my whole family. It's so good to be here with you. I've also enjoyed uh, very much over, as, gosh, has it been a year, Drew, uh, with our uh, advisory team. And I see Brother Jerry down here and, and Bob and, and John David, and, and we've been meeting together and getting to know each other. And I just want to tell you, you've got some really good men. I've just so enjoyed uh, being with them and Drew as well, of course. So thanks. Drew said that I uh, planted, helped plant a church 40 years ago. That's true. Um, and you planted a church a number of years ago. How many years? Original plant? 82, 82 years ago, and then you kind of have relaunched a church uh, in the last year, I guess. Uh, Easter was a kind of launch Sunday, 
And um, you know, I've learned a couple of things about uh, starting churches, launching churches, and it's just kind of it's kind of the obvious. But I just want to say it before we begin this morning: um, church planting, uh, restarting, is hard. It's really hard work. There's all kinds of issues that come up. There's all kinds of challenges. Change is hard. There's just there's just so many things. It's hard. But the second thing is, it's also one of the greatest things you could do with your life. It really is. I love what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians. He says, don't lose heart. Don't don't grow weary in doing good. For in due time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't grow weary. I think you're already reaping a harvest. I'm thrilled. Uh, to be with you uh, this morning. Now today I want to begin with kind of a probing question, and it's a question I'd like you to kind of remember and carry in your mind and in your heart, kind of throughout the message, and we're going to kind of be unpacking it, but I just wanted to kind of be in your, your frontal lobe a little bit as we, we go along. The question is this, what does it look like in your life and mine when our expectations in life and our realities are not in alignment. Said another way, how do you and I respond when there is a gap between our dreams and what we had hoped for and what has actually happened? A gap, in its simplest terms, is the space between your expectations and your realities. And I'm just wondering, what does it look like in your life and mine when our expectations and our realities are not quite matching up? You know, there are lots of common areas where this issue comes up. Uh, I mentioned a few. Um, work, or career, vocational, your vocational journey. Sometimes it, it just doesn't turn out. It's just not quite providing the meaning, the sense of purpose you thought it might have. Raising children. Raising children is a wonderful thing, but sometimes it's not as easy as you thought it might be. Uh, Sometimes uh, there's challenges with school choice, peer pressure, image issues, them feeling like they don't belong or have any friends and isn't managing the schedule of their activities and carpools and events enough to say it's not as easy as you thought it would be. Health issues, there's all kinds. We've got flu epidemics going on right now. There's allergies of uh, all kinds. Maybe like, uh, like me, you've had maybe an unexpected case of the shingles or an unexpected case or two or three or four of kidney stones uh, like me. Or maybe if you're my age or maybe a little bit older, you join me in waking up every morning and realizing there's kind of a new ache, there's kind of a little new pain, there's kind of a, a little new discomfort, but maybe you didn't really expect life would be that way. You know, maybe it's conflict. There's conflict in our marriages, there's conflict with friends, there's conflict at work, there's conflict in church, uh, there's uh, conflict uh, all over the place, and maybe you just didn't think there'd be that many. Maybe you didn't think they'd be that serious in, in places that you, you, just, you just weren't believing that it would happen even there. Finances, maybe you're not where you envisioned you wanted to be. Maybe your spiritual life even has not quite turned out exactly like you had hoped. 
uh, it would be. Now I want to tell you, I have had gaps in every one of those areas on multiple occasions. So I hope as I go through those, you're just, you're just joining me in this and identifying kind of how life uh, works. Now I want everybody to kind of identify maybe one of those or maybe it's stimulated a thought about another one that you have. And that, uh, that's what I want you to kind of have in your mind. And I want you to just as we're going along kind of ponder, how have you been responding to that gap? And maybe a follow-up would be, is it working? How are you responding? And, and maybe a follow-up would be for you just to consider, is your response working? What I want to talk about today, or the big idea for today, is a winning combination. A winning combination. It's a unique combination that is absolutely critical in our spiritual lives, especially when you and I are facing a gap. It is a special combination because it puts the glory of God on, on display every single time. It never misses. 100% of the time, this winning combination puts the glory of God on display. Now, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, in the Old Testament, in your Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 7. And Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, of course, is a is a familiar story of God promising to use a man named Gideon to defeat this powerful army of the Midianites. And it's in the context of his military engagement that Gideon discovers a huge gap between the military campaign he envisioned and the one that became his reality. And it's in the midst of that that God reveals to Gideon and to us this great combination, this winning combination that I want you to grasp with me this morning. So I'm going to read through these verses just to recall the storyline and then make a couple of observations. Then Jerubiel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of all the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people turned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set aside by himself. Likewise, everyone uh, who, who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths was about 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. 
Now, this is a very familiar story, but it's a great story. I want to make just a couple of observations about things we already know about Gideon before this moment. First, we know that Gideon was a leader who had a tendency to be controlled by insecurity, doubt, uh, worry, fear. Uh, The reason we know this is because back in chapter 6, right after God had promised that he was going to use him, Gideon said, well, yeah, I'm okay, but I need a sign. I need some kind of proof that this is really going to work out before I, I totally commit my leadership uh, to this adventure that you're, you're talking to me about. And of course, you'll remember the whole story about the fleece, right? That was going to be the sign. It starts off and, and Gideon wants the, there to be dew on the fleece and the ground dry. And God does that. And you would have thought, well, okay, there's your proof, but not quite enough for Gideon. So he says, I want you to reverse it. I'm just checking you out, Lord. I'm going to see if I can really trust you. And so he says, this time the fleece dried and the ground uh, wet around it also, and God did that as well. But the point is you can feel him wrestling with the issue of when you're facing something that's really challenging, you're, maybe you find yourself like him, wrestling with whether or not God can really be trusted. I need some proof. I need something extra. I got the promise, yeah, but... Come on, show me something. That's where he is. Have you ever faced a gap where you wondered whether or not God could be trusted? Oh, of course we have. All of us have, more than one. So we're, we're kind of right in his shoes this morning. Secondly, we know that Gideon's army of 32,000 men camped at the spring of Herod is only a fraction of the size of the army of uh, the Midianites. In verse 12, they, uh, uh, the Bible tells us they, they were like the uh, sand on the seashores. They looked like locusts in the valley, swarming everywhere. Later in uh, the book of Judges, we're told that Gideon was grossly outnumbered. There were 135,000 men in the army of the Midianites, 32,000 in Gideon's initial army, and it is not what he initially expected. Now, verse 2 is really important. You know how sometimes in a Bible passage you'll be reading along and there's a, there's a verse that's kind of like a hinge verse, or it's kind of like, like the one that unpacks or explodes the whole text. Well, verse 2, I believe, is that one in the seven verses that I read. And I'm going to read it uh, to you. Again, because I think it helps us understand what God is up to, what he's about to do. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. Now, that's an odd statement to me. Is it not to you? 32,000, 135,000. Gideon, the people with you are way too many. And then he kind of says, why? There are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. God is establishing the tension between self-reliance and trusting him with everything, especially when you encounter a gap. It's the difference between my own hand has saved me and, oh no, my God has saved me exactly as he promised that he would. And I just want to, I know you know this, but I just want to say it. Self-reliance never glorifies God. Not one time. It never glorifies 
the Lord, but trusting him with everything always does, that, does so. Now, it's like God's going to kind of ratchet up the pressure because he's going to dig a little bit deeper right into that. We just read this into the size of Gideon's army. And so in verse three says, your initial army of 32,000 is way too many. Whoever is fearful is free to go home, pass free, no questions asked, no problem, no disobedience involved. If you're afraid in the least bit, you can go home. And 22,000 leave. And, and from what we know about Gideon, Drew, I bet he was thinking about leaving, don't you think? <laughs> at, least, at least considering it. So now he's down to 10,000 men. And then the Lord comes back and says, you know what? You're still overloaded. You still got way too many. He says, let's do the uh, drinking test. And so they go down to the spring and only the lappers could remain. And we know that that was only 300 men. So put yourself in Gideon's shoes. Your army is depleted. We're down to 300 against 135,000. I mean, this is ridiculously impossible. There, there could not have been a more absurd moment in what he had envisioned and what was actually happening than, than this. Surely the tendency toward fear, surely the tendency toward worry or anxiety or insecurity or inadequacy and all the other things would have been creeping in his heart. You know, we know that Jesus says in the New Testament to us, with God, nothing is impossible. But don't you join me in saying, you know, but sometimes it's really hard to believe that verse. So, so sometimes it is. That's where Gideon is. So, when, so God knew this as well because he knows all of us so well and he knows Gideon. And so he repeats the promise. He kind of goes back to the promise and he, he says, Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Couldn't be more clear. He says, I will give the Midianites into your hand. And then you've got to love this because there's just a little extra touch of grace. It's like God knew that the promise wasn't good enough on the first time and we needed the fleece. So now it's the second time. And so he's going to add just a touch of grace for his leader. And I love this because he adds a further encouragement by allowing Gideon to hear the interpretation of an enemy soldier's dream about the success of Israel before it ever happened. And so if you, could, if you remember, he and a buddy kind of go down to the edge of the enemy camp and they're hiding out and, and he had no idea of what he'd hear or what he'd see and there's this huge army and they're down there and he hears this soldier uh, telling uh, the, about this prayer that he's had and about the outcome. And verse 15 says, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. It doesn't say he went back to camp and worshiped. It doesn't say he went anywhere else and worshiped. I envision him just falling almost on his face and worshiping the God who's finally made it clear He's finally helped him to understand that he could be trusted even with what looks ridiculously impossible. And so he worshiped. And you can tell that his confidence is renewed and you can tell that there's been a transformation of heart and soul because when he goes back, it says he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, the 300 men, arise men. The Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Well, they haven't done anything. 
You feel the life change? You see the transformation of his soul in that moment, now leading with complete confidence because he's trusting God with everything. And then, of course, we know, verse 16 talks about this, but we know he takes the 300 men, divides them into three groups of 100, and they go out and and defeat this huge army, blowing trumpets and carrying torches and clay jars. I bet Gideon hadn't counted on that either. What about you? If this story teaches us anything, it teaches us that less of us and more of God is a winning combination. Every single time. Less of us and more of God is a winning combination. John the Baptist says it this way, he must increase and I must decrease. Same idea. Less of us is surrendering self-reliance. Less of us is letting go of doubts and fears, worries and anxieties. It's, it's complaining and all the rest. It's letting go of all of that. It's letting go of our, our need to be fully in control of everything. It's letting go or releasing the need to know all the details about something in favor of trusting God, even with mystery. It's letting go of all that. It's just trusting Him. This form of surrender is not a retreat from difficulty, but rather it is a spiritual advance of the most profound order. Dr. David Benner offers us this useful definition of surrender. He says, surrender is an inner attitude or posture of non-resistance to the flow of life. I like that. Surrender is an inner attitude of posture of non-resistance to the expected and the unexpected things that come into our lives, to the good things and the hard things uh, that come in to our lives. He is describing a more receptive attitude to gaps as opposed to a a reactionary one. More receptive, no resistance, more receptive to kind of, what's God up to? What does he want me to learn? Where am I needing to trust him more? That's the kind of receptivity he's describing. Abraham did not expect his leadership journey to include sacrificing his long-awaited four son, did it? But he laid him on the altar, and the Bible says he lifted the knife, and right at the moment when he might have sacrificed his son, God intervened. He chose surrender. He chose less of himself and more of God. Mary did not expect to become an out-of-wedlock pregnant virgin. Never happened before, never happened since, but she didn't expect that. She would face, along with her family, all kinds of shame, all kinds of fear. She even had a concern about being, the Bible even says so, about Joseph putting her away. All of those things were right in her face. She was an outcast. They were, everybody's thinking adultery, right? And they're still in the betrothal period. There's all of this is, is, is going on. And yet she surrendered. She trusted God with the unimaginable. It was not explainable. She said, behold your bond slave, let it be done unto me. I call that receptive. No resistance. 
When God's son, son hung on the cross for you and me, the Bible says he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Have you ever thought about how Jesus held back on self-reliance? He held back on, on power in favor of surrender to the will of his heavenly father. And it's the most influential act of leadership in human history. Bar none. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. He modeled that less of us and more of God is a winning combination regardless of the circumstance. Now, to be honest and to be sure, the quality of surrender that I'm talking about can be a fearful thing. Letting go of all control, really, you know, letting go of everything. Don't, don't, don't I need to worry just a little bit and trust God and kind of put those two together? It can be a fearful thing, but putting God's glory on display is a fantastic thing. It's worth the effort. So I want to go back to my initial question. How do you and I respond when there is a gap between our dreams and what we had hoped for and our reality? I want to share with you a few of the personal gaps from, of my life, just kind of a smattering. The divorce of my parents when I was five years old was not what I'd hoped for. Now I was just a kid. I couldn't possibly understand all the relational dynamics of that. All I knew growing up is that I wish my mom and my dad lived in the same house. But that wasn't my reality. I was totally blindsided when Carolyn's cancer was discovered 24 years ago. I can still see ourselves, Brother Jerry, in the, in the, the little exam room. And this surgeon friend of ours came in and gave us the news and, and then walked out of the room. And I just remember sitting in there in this little exam room. And we kind of looked at each other. What do you say? I felt numb. I, I was fearful. I felt completely helpless. There's nothing I could do to help her heal. That wasn't what I envisioned, but it was my reality. Over the course of my uh, life and leadership uh, journey, there have been a number of relational conflicts that were totally unanticipated. Some with people I loved so much. Some with people who loved me so much. Many of those have been resolved by God's grace. Some of those have not been resolved. Everything in me wanted to try and make that come together, try and get it worked out, bring everybody back uh, to unity, but I could not. It's not what I envisioned, but it is my reality. My father's sudden death at 59 years of age created a huge gap. I was 29. And... Um, uh, it's not what I'd hoped for. It was not the reality that I wanted, but it was what was given. And uh, that one's really been a hard one. I, I've, I've grieved that loss. You kind of don't forget that. Uh, uh, you just don't. And one of the things that's been a big, a big loss to me about that, interestingly enough, has been I just wish he could have known my adult children. I just wish he might have known some of the grandkids. I wish he could have seen them do some of the things they're so good at doing. But that's not my reality. Now, I've learned uh, 
that in responding to gaps in life, they're really just a couple of responses and kind of force the extremes a little bit, but there's either the reactive or the receptive. And over here on the reactive side, just envision I've got a whiteboard and so I'm writing on it. So over here on, the, on this side is the reactive side. That's the more self-reliant. That's the I'll take care of it myself attitude. And then over here on the receptive side, of course, is a, is a more surrendered. It's, a, it's a less of me and more of God attitude, what we've been talking about. And then we come back over here, and, and this one has a much greater dependence on force, like mine, my force. And over here, it's much greater dependence on power. That is God's power. This one's much more spirit-led. The reactive response exposing an inner need to be fully in control of everything. I just got to be in control. I've got to have some level of control in all these things. And the one over here on the receptive side reveals an inner freedom to relinquish it all. To trust the Lord with everything, even unresolved mystery. So you kind of get those two things. Now, to be honest with you, I've found myself in both camps before. How about you? You kind of start out over here and then you realize you're back over here again. You know, you, you, you kind of, oh man, I'm all in with Jesus and have a great prayer time, then come back over here and start complaining, start worrying and judging and all, kind of, and all kinds of things. It's, it's what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, the warfare between the flesh and the spirit, isn't it? And all the attributes that go with each one. But I thought, just to be honest, I want to tell you what some of my reactive responses have been over the course of my life. Here's just a few. Obsessive analysis. You lay there, you wake up, thanks, Daryl. You, <laughs> you, wake, you wake up at night and you're tossing and you're turning, so you're going to run back through that thing one more time. And kind of your position and the other position, how sorry that position was and how right on target um, yours was. Anxiety, worry, feeling like I needed to get it under control. I just don't like all this dissonance in my life, all this, all this trouble and conflict uh, going, going on. Blaming others, judging others, com- complaining, Please tell me that you can identify with some of these responses. Come on, just a little bit. Help the boy. Thanks. You you get the idea. Here's what I'm trying to say. When there's no surrender, there's no less of me, more of God in any Not one of us. Now listen really carefully. My... reactive responses have never put the glory of God on display not a single time that's convicting not a single time yet as he began to work with me and began to soften my heart about some of some of uh, these things I really feel like it was a heart level transformation in me I became convicted and more broken about how offensive those things might be to God's immense love for me, to God's goodness and faithful, faithfulness to me. He's always good. He's always faithful every day forevermore. And even his sovereignty in my life, I got started thinking, man, those responses don't sound like that. I believe that about God. Sound like I'm, I'm uh, sort of inconsistent in my faith and it was penetrating my soul and it convicted me and when that happened my perceptions about gaps and the purposes of gaps changed a lot 
So I want to pull everything together here right at the end with three observations or, or 21st century applications with you. These explain, each of these explain the extraordinary value of the winning combination we have surfaced this morning. So here's the first one. Gaps are God's invitation to awaken you and me to our need for closer communion with him. When we want it this way, and it turns out this way, and there's a gap, they're not matching up, it is God's invitation to awaken you and me to our need for closer communion with him. It's the mutual abiding of John 15, I and you and you and me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Those verses just remind us that we have never been intended to be uh, adequate for life's gaps. God never intended us to be adequate for the challenges of life, and, and we're not. And when you and I are more receptive to them, they cultivate a greater awareness of God's presence and power both in us and around us. Can you believe that the God of the universe chose to house the Holy Spirit in your life and mine? You house God all the time. And he's on the inside of you working and he's all around you uh, working uh, all the time. The Apostle Paul prayed three times for his thorn in the flesh to be taken away, didn't he? And God said no every single time. Why? Because God's grace is sufficient for power, that is God's, is perfectus in weakness, that is yours and mine. I even believe with the Apostle Paul, it, it goes beyond that. I believe that the thorn was a spiritual asset, not a liability at all, even though he thought it was. I think it was an asset that God was using to awaken him further and divide him into an even deeper trust relationship and even greater power for the very leadership he needed to accomplish the things that he did. He could have never done it. You see? There's a different viewpoint. Second, gaps are our greatest opportunity for heart-level transformation and character development. Gaps are our greatest opportunity for heart-level transformation and character development, becoming more like Christ. This one builds on the first one. Once we realize that we're inadequate and that we need to pursue closer communion, then there are fresh opportunities for greater self-awareness and wholeness as a Christ follower. Somewhat surprisingly, I believe that our greatest opportunities for personal transformation come through significant suffering and embarrassing failure, not success. I think success tends to make us uh, arrogant. I think it tends, well, we got it. I, I think we, uh, it makes us self-reliant. I think it, at times it even makes us forget our need for Christ. I think it's a lot more in the pain and the suffering that we have unique opportunities for greater self-awareness and wholeness as a Christ follower. I like the way St. Augustine, some of you may say St. Augustine, but you know who I mean. He said, in my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. 
wasn't in the greatest success. In my deepest womb, I saw your glory. And it dazzled me. So here's the progression. Receptivity to gaps promotes closer communication uh, with the Lord. That can lead to a personal transform, a greater transformation in Christ's likeness, which third results in the view that gaps are privileged moments for putting God on God's glory on display. Gaps are opportunities or privileged moments in your life and mine for putting the glory of God on display, just like Gideon, just like Abraham, just like Mary, just like Jesus. You know what? Life is not about you and me. We'd like it to be. We keep trying to make it that way, right? Life is not about you and me. It's about him. And that's why less of you and less of me and more of him is a winning combination. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to begin by just thanking you for the immensity of your love for us. Whether we're going through good times or bad times, you're always there. You never stop loving us. Thank you. I'm so grateful to you for the Trinity and the resources that you have provided. And what we're asking for today, which we're not adequate for, is that you would transform our hearts and our minds, um, that you would make us more like Jesus every day, that you would even help us long to delight in your presence, long to be close to you, because that's where power comes from. Lord, would you help us do that? Would you help us be in a place where we are experiencing a growing intimacy and likeness to our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ in order that you would be lifted up and glorified more than anything else in our lives. We cannot do that without your help. In Jesus' name, amen.